Uh, hello, everybody, to uh, Jerusalem fans around the world. Uh, welcome back to uh, In Ancient Time, your favorite podcast about books. I'm Jim. I'm uh, a I'm a top two co-host here on the show, and I'm pleased to be joined today by uh, CVZ. How you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Great, great, great. And Sam, how's it going? Doing pretty good. Thanks. All right. So uh, we got some interesting things in the pipeline today. The, this part of the book that we're talking about goes to a lot of really interesting places. It uh, talks a lot about the role of the artist, the role of divine inspiration, insanity, and mysticism, and really kind of touches down in a lot of different places. It's like a bolt of lightning that kind of branches out everywhere. And we won't get to them all, but they're all very interesting. And uh, yeah, can't wait to talk about them. I think that before we start to, we should, I guess, mention that although this podcast is ostensibly about the book, we know that probably none of you are actually reading it. If any of you want to message any of us and tell us to like what extent you want us to talk about that and to what extent you'd rather just have us use that as a jumping off point, feel free. So um, our first uh, jumping off point is going to, I think we're going to talk a little bit about artists and a little bit about insanity should and we a few places in uh yeah we should we what set the scene do you figure yeah just give like a quick overview of the chapter yeah okay so, so um our chapter follows a slice of life in uh, uh character Ern vernal uh, aka ginger who is a um kind of a semi-skilled uh, craftsman living in 1860s in lambeth in london with his wife and mother and growing family and in order to support them he takes a job uh, doing restoration of frescoes at St. Paul's Cathedral where he is um, struck by a moment of divine inspiration in which he has visions of um, angels on the wall speaking to him and giving him sitting him down and telling him all sorts of things about how the world worked that he barely understood and didn't know how to express and it's a story about being inspired, but it's also a story about, about going insane because it ends somewhat tragically as he's never the same. He goes back, can't really work very much, ends up in the notorious uh, Bethlehem Mental Hospital in London, aka Bedlam, uh, where he, he dies young. So this is a pretty sad story, but it does have its ups and downs. And so it kind of blurs the lines the entire time between inspiration versus insanity and kind of being the divine versus the disturbed and uh, sort of that experience of being struck and seeing what nobody else can see. There's kind of an interesting arc to the chapter too because it begins with, it's very grounded in kind of the details of Ern's bodily existence, so to speak, like talking about his chamber pot and things like that in a lot of detail, but by the end it's kind of this transcendent mystical experience. So. It's interesting to see the shift that occurs from yeah. where it starts to where it ends up, I think. And it's a very physical element to that to that shift. It's it, he, he literally has this this moment of transcendence and at the top of the cathedral. He's he's physically lifted up there with this, you know, this lift which gets described in detail. He's moved up off the street, up out of the regular world, and into this this higher this higher place, yeah. this sort of religious yeah. place where he has the experience. In a before, before we get there, why don't we talk a little bit about his journey to work? Yeah, sure. Something that I thought was interesting about that was that although the novel is, 
primarily taking place in Northampton, this chapter is actually in London and Lambeth. And I don't know if either of you are super familiar with Blake and his work Milton, but Milton begins basically with John Milton entering Blake as a falling comet through his left foot, and this occurs in Lambeth, where he describes Lambeth's fail as being where Jerusalem's foundations began. So I was thinking that maybe that's why Moore chose to set the novel's first actual chapter in Lambeth rather than in Northampton. Blake does get a direct shout out in this chapter, does he not? He does. Yeah, so when Ernie's walking past Hercules Street, he mentions that the poet William Blake lived there. So very, very in your face at that point, at least. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the things, because those kind of details are in your face about how much London is changing. It's temporally set just uh, in, I think, 1864. Yeah, it's a very heavy-handed, like, setting of time and place. Yeah, and I think that's, because he's already introduced kind of modern Northampton, he has to pull it all the way back. And so it does get a, a little heavy handed with, you know. Um, he mentions that there are underground trains now that Marx and the First International just happened. He mentions yeah. the, <laughs> the American yeah. Civil War. Just he's, normal things you think about during your morning commute. He, he's, he's the most well informed, semi skilled laborer <laughs> in London, truly. He's, a, he's some sort of a news junkie, yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, these kind of various thoughts uh, fill his fill his mind. I think uh, Alan Moore does a having to cram all that in there does a, a a pretty good job of making a person in a shorter period of time. And then yeah, he does this ascent to the uh, the dome of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral as kind of the the scene of his of his passing over. One might say Vern's trajectory down from the frescoes in the dome back to the ground, having been a, a never being the same essentially. And then eventually becoming so uh, kind of uh, disturbed is that he end up in uh, in Bethlehem Hospital. But um, Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam as it becomes commonly known, was notorious for, in, I want to say, the late 18th century. Uh, it was such a, a notorious kind of scene of, you know, really all kinds of mental ailments that people would take public. To- there, there are public tours of the facilities to, to gawk at just the 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 nutters, um, so to speak. So it kind of gets this reputation by the Victorian period that um, the chapter describes. It would have had a certainly a reputation, but it was no longer the kind of the one of nightmares. Listeners may know um, Bedlam from a series of four paintings by William Hogarth called A Rake's Progress. And it's kind of a um, if you Google Hogarth or A Rake's Progress, rake like uh, R-A-K-E. If you don't know what it is, search it up, and it depicts kind of fall from grace of a merchant's son. It's like the failure and luck of this kind of ne'er-do-well, and it's a series of paintings that starts with him misspending his youth and ends up with him getting falling with the wrong crowd and uh, just merrymaking and his life falling apart, and the last kind of warning moralistic painting is him in uh, Bethlehem Hospital. And uh, it's it's shown to be a, a, a moral failing, of course, as we might understand them as seeing mental illness in that time. And, but William Hogarth, uh, sorry? Sorry, you keep going. Oh, yeah. So, uh, William Hogarth was taught to paint at the Academy of St. James Thornhill, who's a famous kind of Georgian era painter. And he later married Sir James Thornhill's daughter. And St. Sir James Thornhill was none other than the original artist of the frescoes underneath St. Paul's that Aaron Vernal would have been, is described as repainting in this chapter. Oh, wow. Also, William Hogarth had a pug named Trump which is uh, <laughs> a, a very Morian kind of 
prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also think that something about that. Strong argument for block time there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that something about Bethlehem that's interesting is just the way that it looked. Because, like, if you were picturing Bethlehem, it wouldn't be like a typical mental hospital. People described it as being almost reminiscent of Versailles. Like, it was very palatial. At one point, like, after they finished building it, the facade immediately started crumbling. And not in a metaphorical sense, like, the literal facade of the building, because they had made it so ornate. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a good metaphor for the treatment of mental illness during this period as well, I yeah. think. I mean, you, you really... You can't really read a gothic novel of the late nineteenth century without running into to Bedlam. It's such a like it's it's so visually and you know, and, and metaphorically evocative, both like yeah. like at, like that was what it represents, and also just what it looked like and what it meant to walk through it. That it, it's sort of cast this very very long shadow. Well, and uh, Arkham is essentially a direct descendant of Bedlam, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's some interesting parallels between Bethlehem and if any of you are familiar with Foucault, the general hospital that he talks about a lot in Madness and Civilization as well. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Madness and Civilization. What a title. That guy is such a gift for titles. <laughs> Y'all mind if I talk a bit about Madness and Civilization? Please, go ahead. Um, so uh, what do those two things have to do with each other? Uh, so what's what's he on about? So basically, what Foucault is on about, he is talking about kind of the way that I guess how we how society is treated mental illness, and about the general hospital in Paris. He was talking about how well, I guess first you'd have to understand that medieval hospitals weren't really hospitals in the sense that we think of hospitals today, like they weren't. Uh, they weren't treating Helpful. patients much. It was more <laughs> exactly. It was more just kind of a place for people who didn't have a place to go. So, and I think in so Madison, I interject. Sure, go ahead. Um, I because I've I've been I've been spending all week looking through all my old schoolwork, and so I thought remembered a professor who had wanted me to say this, but in Cairo, the Abbasids had a hospital wing of the Al Hazar Medical Institute that did treat. Uh, mental illness as a ailment of the mind but um that's not relevant mm -hmm. to us but he would have wanted me to say that <laughs> sorry you can send him this episode just to show him that you did i could i could <laughs> sorry please continue um i lost my train of thought oh dear um we were talking <laughs> about how you need mental hospitals for your yes oh yeah so the, the general hospital wasn't a medical establishment as we know today, but I guess it kind of operated from this sort of moral imperative to establish order through taking in like the itinerant and otherwise quote unquote unproductive members of society and like integrating them into this semi-judicial structure that operated kind of outside of the purview of the traditional court system. And so that's kind of the groundwork for the modern day asylum as we know it. Interesting. So a sort of quarantine for those who were not, you know, able to be conveniently integrated into the regular structures of society, and then we could develop these alternative structures to to, to contain them. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Jim. 
no, I think you were first, Kiyuko. <laughs> I was just I was just saying, and then there's of course this sort of imposition of like like a, a regimented regimented life on the unproductive people. Um, it reminds me of like you know the politics of the workhouse, where you have people doing often like useless work. Um, but yeah, this idea yeah. that you can't really, yeah, but you can't. I, I mean, and and I mean, sometimes like literally useless. That it's building like in, in Ireland, there's yes, um, yeah. there are famine roads, um, what are called famine roads and famine walls, which often go nowhere. They, they they're they're useless, but they were built as a way to, you know, force starving people to sort of justify themselves to this to the system of, of, of work and this regiment this particular like understanding of regimented labor yeah because um, otherwise you you shouldn't be fed basically yeah and like also yeah often and, from an economic uh, perspective this wasn't even effective because when you had the people performing actually useful work that increased unemployment in areas where that type of work had traditionally been done mm -hmm. so just not very not a very good system in any regard yeah, and and regimented is the perfect word for this this trend and kind of modernization or modernity that Foucault describes. And he talks about the workhouse and about the mental hospital and about um, the prison most uh, uh, most uh, notoriously, I guess. But uh, he starts with the army camp and he starts with that as being kind of the structure of society that forces everybody into a disciplinary uh, yeah regiment that has to do with clock time regularity uniformity and visibility for purposes of surveillance that kind of uh, individuals and, and and family and everything else is kind of dissolved into this uh, very closely watched system and it's kind of con con concurrent with the pathologization of mental illness as uh, uh, as as disease yeah as I understand it yeah I think he described things of this nature as sites of constraint where moral laws can be enforced via uh, the administrative measures which I think is a good description of what you just described and the hospitals as well. Yeah. And what did Blake think about the enforcement of moral laws? Not by... a fan. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> authorities. <laughs> yeah. I think he was very opposed to that. Yeah. That, that I'm sure right. we'll get into that more throughout the novel. And yes, I, I do imagine. That we've seen the last of that man. <laughs> He's going to be a recurring presence throughout this podcast and throughout the rest of the book. This is fan fiction. <laughs> you know how in Milton, Blake is just basically inserting Milton into the story that he wrote for his own purposes? Mm -hmm. That's kind of like what Alan Moore is doing with Blake in Jerusalem. Yeah, really, he's using him like a... a was it Virgil in the Divine Comedy? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. The Divine Comedy was fan fiction. fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You can put all the all the historical figures you dislike in various situations <laughs> of torment. Oh, it's incredibly <laughs> petty. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and worst of all, below, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate is this enemy of mine from the Florentine literary community that. Uh, <laughs> Brace me at university or whatever. <laughs> um, Got to get the annotated copy of that one, folks. <laughs> um, where were we going with this? We're just, oh, we were going. To, we were going via Blake. Yeah. yeah. So what I'd be I'd be interested in, in in talking about would be 
moving from bedlam to the divine experience of madness and like artistic artistic madness do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I only have, I, I have a little, a little I want to talk about. I, I think, I mean, divine madness and madness is, and, and revelation is madness is something that's pretty, it's, it's pretty intensely fascinating to me. And it seems like it's something that sort of exists as, as far back as you want to, as, as well you want to go and, and almost any, any like, Written or oral tradition, and one of the oldest, one of one of if not the oldest Greek gods is Dionysus, I think, um, who's the god of, among other things, ecstatic ecstatic madness. Um, he's uh, the 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 beast from the east, the ace <laughs> of Thrace. Dionysus is like is, is like interestingly like definitionally a foreign god. It's it's an other. It's it's he's something that comes from the outside, um, and he comes bringing you know revelation and terror and madness. And it's madness is is with Dionysus. It's both like a, a punishment for non-believers, for skeptics, um, and it's also a gift. It's also something that's you know that's also sort of like a, a, the beautiful practice of, of of religion. I think it's the, probably the the thing that I. That I was immediately thinking of when reading both of these chapters is, is um like, because we're, we're this this first chapter is set in St. Paul's and the next chapter references St. Paul's. That for me the like iconic moment of divine revelation is is Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, which is this like, which it, it, this this chapter feels extremely like referential of. Um, in what sense? It's he's he's struck by by light. He is offered this profound revelation. And I, I, I'm interpreting this kind of literally, and I'm I'm not really a I'm not really a Christian, and I'm not going to really interpret this in a particularly Christian way, which maybe some Christians will get mad at me for. But for me, just like reading on the surface of like the um, the the King James, Saul is like offered has this extraordinary experience that totally changes the course of his life on the road to Damascus. He's confronted by, by God, by this blinding light that takes away his sight. And this is just my reading of the text, but he is, he's left blind until another disciple comes and heals him and gives him his sight back um, three days later. And I guess to me, it's it's that's it's sort of striking because it, it it there's possibly a reading of it where it's it requires another an interpreter, someone to help make sense of this experience or to, which this is probably a sort of extra textual reading here. But it seems like to me, sort of, Ern Vernal's experience is of this like profound moment of revelation, and but no one's able to meet him there. No one's able to meet him at this point of revelation. He He's offered this like, totally jarring, like incomplete, like the like, tr truth about the universe that does not fit with any of his previous understanding, which drives him mad as I think is, is sort of an appropriate response to experiencing yeah. something that denies everything else you've you've experienced, which I think is, is part of the reason why like divine madness and also like innocence and and 
like childishness can be associated because children are perhaps more robustly able to experience, like to, to, to accept these entirely alien ways of thinking or, or entirely new ways of thinking without um, yeah, having their sort of entire world. Yeah. 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 They're having to do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it, it feels very much like Paul's, Paul's experience. And I think that the thing with experiences like this too, is that, if you're going insane, it's scary, but if you're not, that's even scarier, which is something that Ern mentions too when he's experiencing this. Yeah. yeah. Like a break, he's having a breakdown. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he reminds himself that he, he can see this angel speaking to him, but then he said, well, if I was insane, all the angels would be speaking, but it's just this one <laughs> talking about directly in my head. It's it's pretty yeah. scary stuff, honestly. It's uh, yeah. pretty vividly described. The sensation of going insane is, uh, yeah. Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about what the angel said to him and eternalism? Because Sam, I know you wanted mm. to touch. We're given like this description of it, eternalism pretty pretty explicitly. The the block universe, the idea that. History has already happened. There's an eternal, eternal now. Um, it's it's everything like has already happened, is happening, will happen all at the same time. Um, all of the things that are playing out right now have already resolved themselves. Um, and Ern is like, at one point earlier on, he's thinking about I think the Civil War and about the, the question of slavery in the United States, and the the, the angel offers him, you know, this like this like possibility now of freedom is borne out in some extent um, in the future, which, which already exists in a real sense. And then that this, you have this, this paragraph in the angel's voice and then the sentence of the, in, in the text, which goes, this continued for two and three quarter hours. <laughs> so poor, poor Ern is just being blasted with information here. Um, yeah, Ern is being taught metaphysics like Neo is taught jujitsu. <laughs> um, so I've got a, a one of the things I was looking through with all my old papers that I've been um, fighting all week was uh, my uh, old philosophy class. And if I might quote, he who has seen present things has seen all, both everything which has taken place from all eternity and everything which will be for time without end, for all things are of one kin and of one form. Um, apparently, Marcus Aurelius uh, believed this same thing, and I don't know if that's a Stoic thing or just kind of a, a generally kind of Platonic thing, or if it's uh, not something he said at all. And this is an old case of the Abraham Lincoln's, uh, <laughs> as I imagine. Marcus that that sounds like Aurelius. Subject to, but it it is yeah, it does have that vibe. He talks a lot about about repetition. That this is gonna this is this is happening. It's gonna happen again. Things aren't really gonna change. You know, the evil that you see now has already existed, will continue to exist. Don't, you know, don't get too, don't get too ticked off about it. It's, it's, it's eternal. Just chill out, man. Yeah, basically. Easy to do when you're the emperor. It's going around where it's like the Pepe with the champagne glass and <laughs> the caption is just stop caring. Whenever yeah. you feel mad, sad, anxious, etc., think of this image. Just don't. That's, that's what block time is uh, to me. But um, <laughs> uh, Sam, I also wanted to, ask you about since you're our uh, resident uh, comic art correspondent about uh, kind of Alan Moore and his block time and other kind of works and so 
like I think of his work and I think of, of course, um, from hell that jumps uh, back and forth through time and connects it kind of by by uh, by distance as well as by uh, by year. And this is, of course, something else that uh, the angel tells uh, Ern is that uh, if Lambeth is actually next to Northampton, if you were to fold the map in a certain way, meaning that yeah. it's uh, only in a dimension, only in a single dimension that humans are able to comprehend or what have you, are they uh, not adjacent? And in others, they are, which is a bit of uh, authorial sleight of hand, but uh, manages uh, to make it to make it work. Nobody could write an entire book about uh, about Northampton <laughs> alone. Yeah, yeah. I think I think more. So sorry, I was more... just asking if you'd see that anywhere else in Alan Moore besides that. Doctor Manhattan, of course, is kind of the one that. Comes yeah. To mind, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think more is like just really fast, sort of constantly fascinated with this comes up in Promethea also. There's like this this constant time jumps. I mean, honestly, comics love time travel. This isn't just a more thing. There's, I don't know if you've ever, like I'm, I'm not that big a comics guy. I have not read a lot of in-stream superhero comics, but I do sometimes through a sort of kind of sick masochism enjoy reading the superhero comics wikis just because they're, just a really fascinating exercise. There's a lot of a lot of time travel, a lot of people, you know, becoming sort of endless Back to the Future kind of shenanigans. Um, but anyway, back to back to more. I think I I was doing some reading this week. I was sort of pulling up some um, a few various works of like comics criticism, um, which maybe take some strong positions that I would not. But, there's there's one which sort of argues that that comics are the inevitable superior successor to like cubism, and that more is the sort of the better Picasso, which I think is a, a maybe a stretch. Um, Picasso, yeah. <laughs> like get a load of this guy. Let me tell you something. It's like Picasso, <laughs> like but, Picasso but he's better. Yeah. But there is an interesting thread to pull there, like through cubism to comics, to Moore's uh, understanding of time, um, where I'm not gonna try and sum up the, the whole movement that is cubism, but we can, I can say with some confidence that cubism is very interested in like decomposing reality uh, or shapes. Specifically, a very, a very common thing in cubism is to incorporate many views of like one object or a situation or movement into a single painting. So we might see like a, a, some Picasso portraits might. I'm thinking of a nude descending a staircase right now. Yeah, exactly. Like Duchamp is, is like a perfect example of this where you've got like a movement that's represented across a painting. Um, yeah. Or similarly, just, you know, the, the, the like Picasso's portraits where you, you see a face from multiple perspectives. Yeah. Um, and which I imagine has got to be kind of influenced by heavily by film mm. and more yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that, that this is sort of a very, this is like a, fu a fundamental fact of how comics work, right? And that we are seeing movement composite, like movement or moments or objects composited together on a single page. And more is really interested in playing around with, with time and this, um, like in, you know, you've got like, 
Manhattan, Dr. Manhattan sort of like eternal present shit, which is like a meme now where it's like, <laughs> I am voting for Joe Biden in 2020. I am jacking off in the bathroom at Tim Hortons in 2016. Um, <laughs> I was going to actually make that, that joke was written. I, I, I actually, I actually stopped that for, I, I was, I, I paused there because I was going to say Arby's, um, but I'm not sure if there are Arby's in Canada and I wanted to be um, sort of ecumenical. In that regard, <laughs> I know we are blessed uh, that we, we do have Arby's. We do. Let's, I I'll, I'll keep that in mind for the next time I do that. Can do Canada that. is the shape of uh, it's the shape of Chile. Don't let the actual shape fool you. Yeah, pretty and much. So, um, sideways. It's got a lot more to do with across the border than all the yeah. way on the other side when it comes to fast food. Anyway, <laughs> oh, what a wretched thing to talk about on the podcast. God. It, was, it made me laugh earlier when Sam joined the Discord server that we had set up to record with Freddie, and you just saw like ten videos of different hockey brawls. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how we got there. But, I don't uh, either, but we like to have fun here on in our time and talk about grown men beating each other on right. ice. That's... It's not all nerds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Oh, I wanted I mean, to. In my mind, Greg the Rock is always fighting Donald Grafier. Sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna say that when you were talking about the Pepe just stop caring, whatever, that reminded me of Nietzsche and his concept of Amar Fati, which kind of ties into the eternal recurrence thing that he talks about as well. It definitely does. There's a lot of themes of like repetition in this chapter with yeah. successive generations of the Vernal family. And uh, the the way the angel talks about time and yeah no absolutely please do go into that yeah so for yeah. Nietzsche, uh, Amar Fati is Latin and it translates essentially to a love of fate so it's kind of an acceptance of everything that has happened in one's life and everything that will happen I guess you could say because this is this theme of eternal recurrence is something that came up in a lot of his later work and. I, just want, I was also curious, like, what do you guys think of eternal recurrence? Like, would that be something comforting to you or disconcerting? It depends, honestly. I've, I've definitely weighed that a few times. It's like a, a thought that the, the, the demon offering me the idea that I can, each, each moment sort of has like this, this infinite weight to it because it's going to recur an endless number of times that it, it's definitely that's really caught something for me. I uh, I've thought about that quite a few times, and I think that it is alternatively terrifying and quite comforting. Mostly terrifying, I think. There's a lot of parts of my life that I would not want to. I didn't like living through it the first time, um, yeah. and I don't think it's going to get better. Um, times two, three, um, dot dot dot. To infinity. Yeah, I don't know much about uh, Nietzsche myself, but uh, I think this could probably come down um, on that classic instance of uh, the kind of thought experiment versus kind of guiding principle. Yeah, those things don't always lend each lend themselves well to each other, or kind of absolute truth versus good advice often have nothing to do with each other. I'm thinking here, of course, of 
the Oracle in the, the Matrix because I was talking about Neo earlier. But um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, yeah, it's Nietzsche seems to kind of love to give these kind of aphoristic, but he the way he talks always seems so kind of eternal and timeless that um, I'm not really sure which of those it would be, I guess. He does lend himself to aphorism, for sure. Yeah. Do you think that that's a bad thing for a philosopher? Lending themselves I to I think aphorism? it was... Well, I think, wasn't he like a philologist of Greek or something? Maybe that would do that to somebody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those the the, the like the pre-Socratics were just I was just aphorism. That's the whole. That's yeah. the whole thing. It's, yeah. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I th I think aphorism is it has a utility. I I'm reminded of a, a definition of art I was I was given a long time ago, which maybe ties this back into, but it described art as as furniture for the mind. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, it re it really captured me, and it, it it has made me look at art in a different way, and it's also made me look at furniture in a different way. <laughs> when you think about the sort of functional objects that you surround yourself with and that you use, and I think through that lens, aphorism can sort of be there. There are things that you can have lying around in your house. It's like the weird the 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 skull, you know, the, the rabbit skull you got in your in your shelf. And sometimes you look at them and you find something useful in it. And the, the advantage of aphorism is, is that it's easy for these individual phrases to just stick in your mind and you can just return to them or they can bubble up when needed in a way that I think something that's longer and more conceptual, um, it, it kind of forces you to either fully intern, like to, to truly internalize it or grapple with it um, or, or reject it. Whereas aphorism can kind of sit on the periphery and you can, pick it up and put it down as you as you need to. I think that's a nice Absolutely. way. Yeah, I like Nietzsche. This is also why I, I have a soft spot for, for Marcus Aurelius, who's like very much a an aphoristic aphoristic writer and is sort of constantly transcribing sort of aphorisms, you know, from, from Plato or Epictetus um, that he that he likes. Um, you know, hey of all the if you know kind of philosophical influences to be measured by the amount of yeah people who have your words on their lips like confucius rather seems to run on on aphorism um, yeah. to a large degree pretty impressive uh what you can do if you're good with those i feel like i have a huge blind spot in terms of eastern philosophy unfortunately hmm? i feel like i have a very large yeah. blind spot with regards to eastern philosophy I was struck by this recently. I, I was working my way through another podcast, which is uh, pretty, it, it's called a, what's it, a history of philosophy without any gaps. And they do sort of, he does like 20 minute summaries of very, of historical philosophers in the sequential manner, but he's starts with, you know, the pre-Socratics and is working his way up. And I was struck listening to the pre-Socratics and with some of the Buddhist theory that I've been engaging with recently and seeing the parallels to this. And then also just even just looking up some like cursory stuff and seeing that I, I really have no idea what the like pre like the BC Chinese philosophers. Um, it's just like, it's kind of tragic. It seems like there's a lot of very interesting, both like parallel and contrasting development going on. And you got to imagine that there was like actual movement at the time. Like there was trading going all the way from Greece to China. Um, yeah. 
So some of these ideas had to have traveled and we're just sort of studying this corner without a theoretical context. Well, east is east and west is west and they're the twain shall meet. <laughs> I think with the eternalism stuff too, there's definitely some influence from Eastern religion on there. Like samsara as a concept is basically just freeing yourself from this reoccurring cycle. Mm. Yeah, stepping outside of, there's there's a sort of a movement outside of um, that fits, I think, a lot with particularly Moore's relationship with eternalism, which is that like, and I think he also sort of looks at like magic and art as ways of like stepping outside of that the the block the block of, the block of time. The the blind spot in terms of other perspectives made me think of the second chapter that we're going to be talking about, which is from the perspective of, I forget how old she is. Do either of you remember? Uh, it says she's in her, I, she says at one point that she couldn't even imagine being in her 30s. So I would guess mid early 20s. Yeah, if not late teens. Yeah. Yeah, so the second chapter of the book follows this young mixed race woman. And obviously this is Alan Moore writing it, who is very much not that. So how do you guys think that he did? She's 19. Just just pulled up. It's on the first page, I think. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so yeah. Late teens. I mean, how would I know? But also, I think... Uh, I think his... With this book, I think it's... I think this is going to come up a lot, but his... I think his reach exceeds his grasp, which uh, I think is... I think it's necessary, and I think he does a good job. But he's got a—I I think he's got a bit of a ceiling. S say more about what. Oh, what where um, does he exceed? I think he does a—I think he imitates the voice relatively well, mm -hmm. uh, and like the internal monologue. I think is. Um, I think it—I think it flows pretty well, and I think like kind of the, the character's kind of physical course around the city. And the thought process, mm -hmm. and I think this is something he does really well with. Uh, with um, Ern gets a little awkward when he has to talk about uh, current affairs so much, but uh, definitely <laughs> like physical movements and the way people think is seems like a big. That sort of kind of flinnering thought process seems like a big part of that, and I thought he did that pretty well. Yeah, the other thing is like, I I know it's written by Alan Moore. I can't say what I would think if I had no idea who it was written by. Mm. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. It was yeah. pretty good. Definitely, who Ellen Moore is. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely had just in a similar way to the previous chapter where it's got. I think it's like paragraph two, where it's like Princess Diana, yeah. moon landing, September eleventh. <laughs> you know, like this is what time we're in. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of like the we the we didn't start the fire, um, like setting the <laughs> <laughs> setting the seed. Um, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed it. I I I found it definitely sort of a, a rougher read um, than the previous chapters. Um, yeah, just in terms of capturing her voice, I think that he did well, considering that he is a man who looks the way that he looks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like um. So something that I was thinking about while I was reading this chapter was. I don't know if either of you have read Infinite Jest, but there's a chapter in that that's entirely in AAV, and it's just like really impossible to get through because it's just like awful and like 
<laughs> God. Yeah. I, think I would say if I was making a joke about Infinite Jest. <laughs> Easily the worst chapter of the book, I would say. Because, like, you know it's David Foster Wallace. I that. Yeah, just awful. Just yeah, imagine this... David Foster Wallace is mod- sort of, like, monologuing this to himself in his head and just like sort of nodding in a self-satisfied way like yeah yeah i got it i can't believe that i couldn't do this no no a tweet always makes me laugh there was a tweet from like a couple years ago where it was about a halloween party and some girl was there dressed as Aaliyah in that outfit where she's wearing a white bandana and like the little sunglasses and whatever and some guy asked her if she was dressed as david foster wallace uh, he does have the banana. Great stuff. Um, so I guess just the sort of the, the, the brief summary of the, the, the very brief summary of the chapter is this young woman is wandering and having a real rough time of it, basically, for a variety of reasons. Um, it sort of describes her various like relationships with a set of a set of um a few other like disreputable characters the sort of it seems like the most it's the the most like important and resonant part of it is that she sees a devil of some of some sort or what what i interpreted as a devil um and which she interprets the devil yeah yeah and she calls she she christens him ash moses um, because I think she initially sees him in the, the glowing end of the, the cigarette, um, and this, and we have the very much the like eternal recurrence devil here, where I think she says, um, where, where where she's sort of yelling at this devil and saying, you know, like, what are you going to do to me? You're going to, you know, send me to hell? Like, you know, I'm what's it exactly you know like I, i'm already basically in hell here in bath bath street and the devil just responds precisely and we have i think a similar like moment where with with urn um where she is struck by the fact that she would not have used that word um yes. she would yes. not have used that word that way and so it's it's this very much this like external thing much like with where we're urns thinking like oh they're I would have had all the angels talking. Like, why is just one talking? Um, yeah. And it's interesting because it seems like Marla is Marla, the, the character in this chapter, is actually is is able to function with this. She's not rendered like catatonic. She's not um, sort of destroyed by this this knowledge and this experience. She is able to survive and have another um, like I think. More, more of these like, experiences, like seeing this devil, um, and is able to like continue like living in the world. And I, 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 it feels like maybe because of the way like Moore writes it that this might be because that she already lives in such a like fragmented, um, wor- like the like, world of modernity of like of like the not even modernity but like the the twenty first century um, yeah. that she's able to just incorporate this. Oh yeah, of course there's like a strange guy coming and talking to me. Like this is. This is the world that I live in. I live in the world of this, of the Princess Diana's assassination of 9-11. The moon landing. Yeah, might be fake. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it could be like a function of being, of it not presenting itself in the traditional form that you would expect divine revelation to come 
to you in as well, I guess I would say. Because like with Ern, it was very much an angel talking to you, but with her, it's a little man on the end of her cigarette. Yeah, with Ern, it's obviously like he's literally going up to the heavens on yeah. a lift. Yeah. And uh, like I even like the, I guess being built at pretty much exactly the same time the chapter takes place, they would have been building the Capitol building, which famously has this terrifying Bioshock Infinite style uh, <laughs> painting of, called the Apotheosis of Washington, where he is depicted as a, a, a shirtless uh, Greek god in a robe sitting uh, on a throne and uh, ter- terrifying stuff. But that's what happens in domes, is what I'm saying. That's yeah. the sort of things that angels get up to in uh, those sorts of places. Um, mosques, even. So People be, as- yeah. people be ascending. Yeah, but I, I think it might also just be because she doesn't have um, the same relationship with, like, the experience of, of religion and religiosity and yeah. of, of this person is clearly very different than Ern's, and that, of course, she's not going to experience this like grand religious revelation because she doesn't live in a world that perhaps is as close to grand religious re- revelations anymore. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think Absolutely. like if you have sunlight and the sunlight is streaming in through a stained glass window, that's how you're gonna interpret it. But for her, it's not. Yeah. That. So the, the the context, so it's gonna be in her in her cigarette as opposed to the church window. Yeah, and something that I wanted to talk about also about Nietzsche was that this is very much reminiscent of this bit, and I yeah. think it was the gay science where I have it written down. I could read it. So basically, he proposes that what if some day or night a demon were to steal after you and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times after. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god and never have I heard anything more divine? Hmm. And I think Marla is definitely not feeling this as some kind of divine revelation that was being shared with her. Yeah, she mm-hmm. unprompted goes to, well, this is hell. <laughs> so she really is some kind of intuitive understanding of yeah. um, hell would lie in its, uh, in its recurrence, not in its kind of worsening or anything. Yeah, and the demon the demon doesn't need to to offer her this, this structure. He just affirms it. That's all he has exactly. to do and say, like, yeah. That's that's what's going on here. I was interested. I was reading. This is something that I just I just did a little reading about, which was Blake's relationship with demons. And so, like Blake described, Blake obviously uses like dark satanic mills. This is a negative thing that the mills are satanic. But also, it seemed like Blake had a very Blake's reading of Paradise Lost was one that was um, somewhat simple. Was a more Luciferian reading? Is is that correct, CVZ? I believe he said that Milton was of Satan's party without even knowing it. Because like if you read Paradise Lost, it definitely does present Satan in a more sympathetic light. Yeah, than... I, I, I think that Milton was not as was was very much writing it as a, a very religious, like as as a Christian. But I think that yeah, it's absolutely a very sympathetic portrayal of, of Lucifer. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting too, like just, I was thinking about Paradise Lost as kind of Milton's attempt to create an English epic, like in the style of 
what Dante did for Italy. I think it's interesting from that perspective too, and viewing it as an attempt to be a work of literature, I guess. Yeah, I suppose that's kind of the one. Uh, <laughs> I think I would be hard pressed to think of another great work of Protestant literature if you were to give me <laughs> five minutes. And that's like, <laughs> the result of my own ignorance, but uh, even so. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm at a loss also. Build a Better You by Joel Osteen is the one I've seen. So this the opinion that although Milton couldn't express, or I'm not sure if it was that he couldn't or didn't express it, but that he definitely was somewhat critical of institutional religion and the notion of God that existed for most people mm -hmm. as kind of comes through in a statement about Milton being of the devil's party. Yeah. There was in the epic church of Satan guy sense. Well, <laughs> because of course the, like the, the, the awful, the, the more, the, the cornier sides of like 20th century magic and 20th century Satanism definitely was like heavily inspired by, by Blake and by, by like thinking about like just Crowley and his which I think is interesting because it, it seems like Moore obviously takes somewhat in that tradition, but I was also, I remember reading him just find, I think it was an interview I was listening to him where he just found so much of the like 20th century English mysticism and, and magic with a K um, just like really interminable and sort of extremely Gnostic where it's like all these endless layers of secret teachings that you have to peel back. And this just seems, you know, exactly the kind of ended up sort of reproducing the kind of thing that it um, was trying to reject. Right. Um, whereas to him, it was the, the thing that ended up really appealing to him was this like integration of, you know, magic as, as the art, which is to say art, which is like any sort of concerted effort to, you know, have an effect upon the world. Yeah. More as a kind of an anarchist, he very much does have this kind of strongly, I don't know, like communal instinct of course he has to get a word in about uh, the workers international there um <laughs> big big check mark from the teacher reading the book on that one um and uh leftist writing about the 19th century you just you, you gotta get it in there yeah you gotta, you gotta mention Marx. remind me of the experience of watching uh the Bumblebee Transformers movie where they managed to reference <laughs> every single thing that happened in 1979 over the course of like a commute to school just to drive home where you were um but i think and more i think that also shows through not only in his kind of identification of this uh you know of emancipation in the united states is this you know moment of divine freedom that uh is exists concurrently throughout eternity and the there's obviously kind of sympathy for for Ern vernal or what he imagines uh people like Ern vernal are like but uh i think he also he has this kind of love for uh what he sees as like the, the street essentially as kind of the this like lumpen sort of uh group character like he is i've there's a few works of his i think maybe league extraordinary gentleman but he'll just kind of have this classic dickensian you know a street scene sort of burst into song together and he very does flinner. sorry it's like very much related to the flinner i think that we were yeah, about. he has this kind of this. There's this kind of affection there. I feel like yeah, I think so. Is the ideal expression of of human living is the sort of the city, the city street, and the people who inhabit it. Yeah, and it's it's not you know it's it seems 
you're not less kind of angry or, or rabble rousing. It's just this kind of, uh, yeah, maybe affection's not quite the right word, but yeah, identification somewhere in there. Viewing it as the most authentic expression of human life, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bohemia, yes. <laughs> and when you're talking about more kind of shoehorning all of these reference points, and there, I was thinking about. I'm reading Ulysses right now, and there was the, in the beginning of one chapter, I can picture it in my head, it's like a page and a half, but in this one and a half page, Joyce manages to reference, I think, Goethe, Milton, Shakespeare, Johnson, James I, Gustave Moreau, Jesus, Plato, and Aristotle. <laughs> I... Like, we get it, man. Come on. <laughs> we get it, man. You read. <laughs> I've been enjoying it a lot, though. But yeah, a bit much, I think. He's a big, Joyce is a big, Joyce is a big works out at the library type. Of, type of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's, there's a bit of that in the, the the dream sequence at the start of Jerusalem, where you just have these like really oblique linguistic references, where like more is sort of. A, like the like third where, where the the sort of the Christ like figure is described as the third borough, which is like actually this really oblique reference to this particular kind of like Anglo-Saxon law or this like Anglo it's like proto police officer and Anglo-Saxon uh, and like in like a Saxon um, like legal structure and the Portimoth to Norhan is like this strange court that was held in Nor um, Northampton. Um, and just like all these like specific, he's like very, and he's he's doing it like just just with, with the language that he's using, um, but it's very much like here are all of these threads that I've pulled together. This is this is yeah, my project here is to pull all these things. It, together. It, it, it's 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 a, it's a bouquet, and if he let go, they would all snap back into place. <laughs> yeah, it's a feat of strength as much as anything, really. As a writer, yeah, I feel like yeah. there's a sort of virtuosity to it. Yeah, yeah. To, of, I feel like sitting on the just... box and getting the clothes. Excuse me. Yeah, it's very much like just to prove that you can. I yeah. feel like I feel like Moore is sort of it does sort of fit into Moore's like project though. Um, the way the way he does this, where I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but I I was actually trying to track down the source of this quote and I can't find it because I, which means that I think it's somewhere in one of the like weird YouTube interviews I watched of Moore. Um. But he talks about, I, th I think this is in like the Illuminatus trilogy or like one of the weird stuff that he was reading where he realized that some strange, like a bleak combination of words in it predicted some important event that happened 10 years later or, or could be read to predict it. And what Moore took from this was, is among other things. So if, if we take our sort of block universe that all time exists and so the future already exists now. And then from this, if we take it that the experience of sequential time is a sort of conscious imposition onto this block universe and is insofar as it's a compass and conscious imposition, it's like a symbolic and a linguistic imposition because that's how like our conscious experience is um, like constructed and um, moderated. Moore argues in this moment that he sort of suggests that by like chopping up language and like chopping and changing words and um, and sentences and using strange like 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 
like like rearranging things in unexpected ways, you can right. maybe sort of break outside of this. Yeah. yeah. You can sort of it's break outside. Yeah. And, and like and like predict the future or bring the, the person, bring the person reading outside of temporal time or sequential time. Um yeah. for, for a moment. What did you say? Ambitious. I couldn't tell what you're sorry? Excuse me? I couldn't tell what Jim said when you were Talking. Oh, I just said the traditional English term for that was was chopped and screwed. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, there's definitely something about like some of the like the Kabbalistic traditions of like you know like like redrawing letters repeatedly to sort of um, like transcend linguistic experience. Um, I think that relates yeah, to kind of what we're talking about in the Wittgenstein episode too about the limits of language. Mm. Kind of a different view of that. Oh, I also wanted to yeah. mention, there's this bit in Blake's Jerusalem that I thought was very applicable to Alan Moore's, where he basically says, here, let me read it. I behold Babylon in the opening street of London. I behold Jerusalem in ruins wandering about from house to house. This I behold the shudderings of death attend my steps. I walk up and down in 6,000 years. Their events are present before me. So very much this experience of time unfolding before one. So you, you mentioned Babylon as kind of this, I guess, antipode to Jerusalem in some sense, spiritually speaking, in the in, in Blake. The reason I ask is because I've got a book in my hand. I've got a book in my hands here, um, a great book by uh, Linda Need, kind of an interdisciplinary work of history about uh, Subtitled People, Streets, and Images in 19th Century London, the title is Victorian Babylon, and it opens with this quotation from uh, uh, London as it strikes a stranger, I believe, uh, quoted in the Temple Bar Journal in 1862, so only two years before um, Ern Bernal's uh, similar experience. Quote, informing our idea of the great capital of the British Empire in the 19th century, we naturally look for models in the great cities of the past and the centers of other empires. We compare London with Imperial Rome. And when we would express in one word the idea of her greatness, we call her the modern Babylon. It is natural then that in trying to form an idea of London, we should think of that great Assyrian capital with her lofty walls, her hundred brazen gates, her magnificent palaces and wonderful hanging gardens. So yeah, I guess there must have been some kind of self-conscious identification of London in the sense of imperial capitals, Babylon, but that also seems like it would be, you know, the the sort of vision of London that Blake would abhor and would have essentially no time for when it's based on kind of this um, show, this this show of domination, basically, that it is when Earl, that it becomes when Ern Vernal's looking at it. With Jerusalem being the distant place to which the captive yearns to return, I guess. Yeah, and I think you mentioned ancient Rome, and I think that was something that Blake wasn't very, he didn't like people's tendency to look to Rome as kind of an example from the past? No, it makes sense, right? I, I, That's the I ultimate wouldn't. society of domination. <laughs> Blake was not a statue yeah. guy. Yeah. Yes. Rome sucked. Bad place. <laughs> yeah, there's a, quote of <laughs> there's a quote of his where he talks about the stolen and perverted writings of Homer and Ovid and Cicero <laughs> and how all men ought to condemn them because they're <laughs> against the sublime of the Bible. So, wait, why ought they to condemn them? Because they're set up by artifice against the sublime of the Bible. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, interesting. 
I'm with him on Cicero. I think he's overrated. <laughs> Michael Parenti wrote an insufferable book about ancient Rome, but he had Cicero dialed, let me tell you. Dead to rights of just the whining striver. It's really yes. Anyway. Yeah, Cicero is absolutely a sort of Democrat-style politician. There's really, I, I read this, like, really sort of tacky historical fiction about Cicero. I think it was called Imperium. It's like one of those, like, it's like a Robert Harris book. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's like, very, very much, like, a fan of Cicero, but it's ultimately about this guy who just wants to become consul, and that's his, that's his whole, his whole being is to be successful within the Roman political system, and he has basically no principles beyond that. Um, the reason why he's a defense lawyer is not because he has any attachment to, you know, defending or helping people, but because you make less enemies as a defense lawyer and will, you know, it'll further your political career more. Yeah. Yeah. Dreadful, dreadful little man. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of types like that on Twitter. Great character in the HBO show, though. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> I said there's a lot of those types on Twitter, I think. Yeah. yeah. Love yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, our, our Anglo fascination with Cicero has probably done unquantifiable damage considering all the people that, uh, you know, Eaton churns out. God, yeah. Yeah, and this sort of the, this like particular legalistic worship and the endless studying of, you know, like Roman rhetoric, which is interminable. I've, I, I read a lot of Cicero's speeches and it's really yeah. awful stuff. How did this looking towards Rome as ideal to strive towards start? Was it with Petrarch? Um, I think it would have started even earlier with uh, Italian writers. I mean, the legacy is never like completely gone. Um, Aristotle, of course, is referenced all the way through, and it's being studied extensively in kind of the Islamic world and in Constantinople. But I think probably the first kind of yeah upswing in interest and the it would. I think it would be like the Studia Humanitati in Renaissance Italy being like starting in the kind of mid 14th century forward to, yeah, and then into the Northern Renaissance with, with Petrarch and Erasmus. But uh, I, yeah, I guess he would be as good, a, as good a guess as any. I don't think that Britain adopts it wholesale at the same time as like, like you said, Petrarch was. I think they come later to it and they come through it in many ways via the sense of being an imperial capital and the sense of kind of being the, the hub of all the spokes. And that's how you get prefects at schools and stuff like that. You know, everything from top to bottom is just this horrifying uh, imitation of wearing the Roman Empire's skin. And then they get much more into their own history of... Um, the, like, working of, of the Anglo-Saxon identity is very funny to me. Excuse me? I said, like, the forging of that Anglo-Saxon identity is funny to me. Yes. <laughs> Well, you have this sort of like integration projects, right? Where it's like, you know, King Arthur was like a Roman king or they, they try and, you know, sort of combine the somehow like make out sort of modern England to be like a, an actually like mythically legitimate successor to the Roman Empire. It's honestly kind of creepy, the reverence that they have for their like former occupier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really weird. It reminds me a little bit of like the respect that people with like received pronunciation accents get in like the United States. It's uh, a <laughs> bad vibe. I mean, this happens in, in Ireland where you've got a lot of people who are um, described oh, yeah. as, as West Brits. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people who have, I mean, I, I, this, this happens the world over with colonialism where you have people who 
um, are either benefited for or, or have undercolonialism like sought to integrate themselves into like colonial structures, you know, for like clear like material like beneficial reasons. Um, and then as like, like when, you know, the, there's like after liberation or, or, or whatever, depending upon the place, you have all these people who like indigenous people who have like through like necessity to some extent, like committed themselves to these like colonial ways of being and are sort of yeah. have to like continue to justify that to themselves and to, to others. I have this really sort of perverse fascination with like the British Navy, which I get from, you know, my Horatio Hornbrough novels, my Patrick O'Brien novels. Um, I have chosen to totally ignore that contradiction. Watch I have uh, really tried to split those in my mind, but yeah. Sorry, what was that? I was just saying that I watched Master and Commander for the first time recently and I liked it a lot. Oh yeah. It's a great movie. I don't know. It is. Definitely one of the, I think, it's a really extraordinary adaptation of the, the books in that it, it just it really intelligently takes a small section of one book and then pulls in a couple of elements from a few other books to like capture the, the essence of the, oh, yeah. the series as opposed to like trying to like slavishly adapt like a whole book or try to adapt like several books out of like a, a 20 book plus series. I have a question. Yeah. What are you guys' favorite film or television adaptations of a written work? Oh, God. Probably Master and Commander, but that's kind of the boring answer. Um, I'm a big, like, I'm a huge Patrick O'Brien fan. I've, I've read all mm -hmm. of the Patrick O'Brien books multiple times, which is too much time to spend reading anybody, um, <laughs> really. And... I watched Master and Commander when I was a teenager and was going through a sort of really snobby anti-adaptation period um, where I was like, books are the real thing. You know, all these, 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 you know, none of these movies capture exactly the image I had in my mind of what the book was like and therefore they're, they're awful. Um, and somehow Master and Commander managed to, you know, sneak by this, like, sort of awful snobbery that I had at the time and is was and is one of my favorite movies. So that's probably the one. How about you? Um, I, that's a good question, but uh, I mean, besides, um, uh, besides the Lion King, um, <laughs> I saw a good Tolstoy adaptation a little while ago. Um, well, it seems like every Russian movie is an adaptation of something. That Soviet adaptation of Peace is supposed to be good. Yeah, yeah, and but it's like with I feel like my favorite. I feel like my favorite movie that's an adaptation is probably one that I don't even know is an adaptation and is from some you know, hmm. um, from some little known novel, as so many of these things are. Yeah, I but, guess the uh, question is Lawrence of Arabia. I guess. Mm. I guess the question mm -hmm. is when we say like what is what's our favorite or what's the best adaptation is. Is it our favorite as an adaptation? Do we do we yeah. like it because yeah. it's an effective adaptation, or do we just like it in and of itself? I meant in the yeah. sense of because because it is an effective adaptation. I think. Hmm. Well, my answer is still the same. I think yeah. just in terms of like how much bang for my buck I've gotten out of it, mine would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> 
Yeah, those are those are good. Those are good adaptations, honestly. Yeah, I think those might be those might be actually higher on the list, like as adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess what we could we could ask is, is like, is it a movie that you're watching because you read the book and now you're you're going to the adaptation? Which for me, I was definitely doing that with Lord of the Rings and Master and Commander and what have you. And they, they Lord of the Rings definitely succeeded at capturing the bits that were compelling to me as a teenager reading the book. Right. Are there yeah. any adaptations that have been so good that you've gone back and read the book? Um, like reading Hamlet after watching The Lion King? <laughs> I'm not sure. We can revisit this next episode now that we, like once we've had some time to think about it. Yeah. We'll leave that as a, as a running question. Yeah. Listeners, <laughs> do you have any adaptations that you've gone back to read after watching the movie? Sound off in the comments. If you do, message them to Sam or Jim. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm like 90% sure that I've, I've definitely... I've, I've had this strong feeling that I've, I've read books after watching movies, or at the very least read short stories after watching movies. Yeah, um, me too. I think actually, to mind. I think I've definitely done it with some of the, like at least one of the Philip K. Dick adaptations. Because so I've like I'd read a lot of Philip K. Dick, but I watched a Scanner Darkly before reading the book of it. So I guess that sort of counts. Um, probably have a better example. I feel like Philip K. Dick doesn't count. He's just. Sort of an exception. What was the style of animation in a scanner directly? Like, what was that called? Rotoscope, I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. Sorry, I just I can't remember, and it was bugging me for a second. Um, but do you guys want to leave things off there? Or <laughs> want to talk about? That seems like a good place to leave things. We've got it. We got an open question for for our listeners and for ourselves. <laughs> I don't have anything else on my um on my little pad here, so uh, no, I think that that'll do it for me. That's uh, a lot to think about. I'm kind of knocks to knocks back on my ass for that question. A lot of adaptations to think about. Big question. Mm-hmm. Much to think on. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. We'll do some pondering between this episode and next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do love pondering. Me too. I think we're all ponderers here. This is this is a true ponder cast. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of them out there. Ponder but, gang uh, represent. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, um, thank you guys for joining us for episode four, and we'll see you again next time, I guess. Uh, yeah. I should let Jim uh, do that. everybody next time. No, I'm, I'm not mad. It's all good. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Happy, happy, uh, happy uh, America Kikin Thanksgiving, <laughs> everybody. Jim All just right. has a stuff unrelated to his political views. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs>